Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. This past Friday, President Joe Biden touched down in Poland, and while at a briefing on the humanitarian response to the ongoing crisis, Biden again called Russian President Vladimir Putin a war criminal. On Saturday, Biden called Russian President Putin a butcher after visiting the refugees in Warsaw, Poland. Then, during his Saturday address, uh, Biden made the statement, what is now being described as the remark, an off-the-cuff coda to his address, Biden said, quote, We will have a different future, a brighter future rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light, decency and dignity, of freedom of possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power, end quote. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's an international relations and security analyst based in Moscow. He is Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Critical Hour. So, Mark, many initially believed the comment was Biden calling for the removal of Putin, which I think anybody listening to that would rightfully think so. But in a statement, the White House spokesperson tries to walk this back. And I really hate that term because you can't unring the bell. He said it. He needs to own it. But anyway, uh A White House spokesperson uh, is trying now to clarify that Biden was not calling for regime change, even though he said this man cannot remain in power. Uh, Quote, the president's point was that Putin cannot be allowed to exercise power over his neighbors or the region. He was not discussing Putin's power in Russia or regime change. Help me out here, Mark Sloboda. I need a mind much bigger than mine. I, I don't think you need a, a mind a, a, any bigger than yours in general, and certainly <laughs> not on this. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, even the, the Western media journalists reporting on this did not believe this walk back, right? <laughs> I mean, um, and I, I think when Anthony Blinken attempted to walk this back, um, he, he specifically said, as you know, As you have heard us say repeatedly, we do not have a strategy of regime change in Russia (laughs) Um, or anywhere else for that matter, Blinken said. All right. Well, this is just Anthony Blinken gaslighting the world, right? We, We did not have a policy of regime change in Iraq. Saddam Hussein just got hung. After we invaded, we we don't have a policy of regime change in Syria. Um, you know, we just said Assad must go on vacation somewhere. <laughs> we don't. We didn't have a policy of regime change uh, in Libya. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi was just 
bayoneted and had several violent sexual acts performed on his corpse after we got done with him and bombing his country. He, he I, happened. He happened to just sit on a sword. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, that, this is absurd. Uh, the Western journalists repeating it don't believe it. Right. Uh, Certainly, those being targeted for regime change, i.e. the Russian government, uh, we've heard regime change mentioned with the Chinese Communist Party. We've heard regime change mentioned with the uh, Iranian government, the mullahs in Iran, the way certain people like to call this. I mean, it, it, regime change is not just a policy that the U.S. has. It is the policy that the U.S. has with any, um, uh, you know, uh, government that has an independent foreign policy that dares challenge U.S.-led uh, Western hegemony, its interests around the world. I mean, there have been so many uh, governments that have been regime changed by the U.S. in the last three decades, whether by overt means or covert means and hybrid warfare. It's it's really difficult to keep count at this point. So when when Anthony Blinken added that tail on to the end, you know, uh, we, or anywhere else for them, you, you know, that this is just, you know, he's he's not even taking his denial of what Joe Biden meant. And I mean, take your pick. Did. Did Joe Biden um, either – was this written into the speech and that was an implicit threat and now the walk back is in an, an intentional, you know, um, uh, you know, willing – you know, showing willingness. If you don't go further, we won't go further. The, that sort of thing. Is it a threat or um, is this Joe Biden's really personally held belief that he expressed very passionately. They were talking about his emotional, personal view. While he is the commander in chief and president of the United States, we are told. Um, and this was this was not a did not at all sound like an offhand remark. This sounded like the closing finale of a well prepared speech. Right, Joe Biden doesn't talk like that normally. I mean, anyone could you know, can tell that. Um, and uh, this was obviously intended to be some type of Kennedy-esque Ich bin ein Berliner speech. Well, Joe Biden is no John Kennedy. <laughs> I, I don't think there's any surprise there. And and Russia, you know, for all, you know, the, the history, uh, you know, is not the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, this is, you know, not Berlin uh, in the 1950s. So, um, but um, I, I think this kind of really fell flat because immediately – uh, the European leaders from from Macron to Olaf Scholz in Germany and others basically had to do their own walking back of Biden and separating themselves from his remarks. Macron, you know, put it very, shall we say, in an understated way when he said, uh, those are not the words I would have used. Uh, so this ended his great unity of NATO moment with NATO then, you know, kind of shuffling over to the side and kind of like, I'm not completely with him on this. <laughs> so um, I think I think whatever was the intention, I mean, it's pretty sad. It must be said that one of the ways they're trying to walk this back is the media keeps referring to it as another Biden gaffe. 
right? That's 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 you know Biden was long even in the Obama administration somewhat affectionately referred to as the gaffe machine, someone who would repeatedly insert their foot in their mouth again and again and again. And when you're dealing with a septuagenarian American president, a, a, an essential living political fossil, whom can't keep such lines straight, we are supposed to believe, that presents a danger in and of its own and raises questions uh, you know, about the state of Joe Biden's mind. And I think a lot of countries, to me, as it, as is evidenced by, you know, the number of countries that have refused to get on board with the sanctions have figured out the U.S. empire only sees two kind of countries, countries that they control and countries that they intend to control. And if you're not in the former, you fall in the latter. So he didn't really even have to say that. I think the world, particularly India, seems to figure it out really quickly. That being said, there's something very serious. You know, there's a lot of videos, of course, coming out of um, Ukraine and one of the most disturbing was showing once again a lot of them seem to be coming from the uh the guys with the wolf's angel insignia on their sleeve there's in violation of the geneva convention obviously they're ukrainians that are literally torturing and shooting in the knees um russian soldiers what do you know about that yeah, I mean, there are hundreds of videos now. This is certainly one of the most egregious ones. And it has to be put out that these videos are being taped by the people perpetrating, by these uh, you know, state-armed, state-funded neo-Nazi battalions, Azov, Right Sector, Idaias, and others. This is not something, you know, oh, they were accidentally caught. They are taping these videos themselves and then releasing them themselves online as some type of i don't know threat as as some type of of um of of some type of sadistic bravado um anyway of, of course it's not going to have that intended effect we've seen earlier uh videos of uh, more of these uh, neo nazi sadists uh taking the cell phones of um uh uh russian soldiers uh who fell and dialing up their families and taunting and mocking them uh, that that they have killed their children and so on. And this is very reminiscent, of course, of what ISIS was famously doing uh, in Syria and Iraq. And uh, the extremist nature of, of both is definitely on display there. But the person responsible for that uh, from the reports I have seen and videos I've seen was already been caught. And, and is presumably being dealt with, uh, we could hope, in, in a more restrained and legal manner than the Ukrainian uh, or the Kiev regime neo-Nazi battalions have shown. But if you, if you see this video, and I think it's unfortunately something that needs to be seen to really punch it home, I mean, the Russian uh, soldiers, the POWs, prisoners of war are being brought out of the truck and one by one as they jump out of the they're forced to jump out of the truck they are being shot twice in the legs and as their blood is spilling out they are then uh, beaten and interrogated it, it's not really much of an interrogation it's more uh, uh you know berating uh, you know, it's its own kind of, of torture to the physical torture. And it appears apparent that several of those soldiers, even at the time of video, were close to death from the blood loss and, and not receiving any type of uh, medical treatment. Uh, so um, the 
head of the Ukrainian of the Kiev regime's military um, has, uh, you know, decried it, denied it, promised an investigation. But it, it's quite clear that, you know, I, I don't necessarily believe that this is the Kiev regime's military policy, but it's perfectly obvious that Zelensky, his military, does not have control of these, uh, you know, these Banderite fascist battalions that are, we are told again and again, uh, not really neo-Nazis um, and uh, are also simultaneously the regime's best warriors and strongest defenders. And, you know, we've previously seen them uh, identified by the UN's, uh, the office of the UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights, Amnesty International, Human Rights, um, all kinds of, of war crimes uh, that have been, uh, you know, accusations of been made about Azov and these other battalions, um, you know, dating back to the beginning of this conflict in 2014 and 2015. This is just more of that becoming readily apparent. And um, it is a horrific war crime. It, it is an atrocity. Unfortunately, it's quite clear that this is just the tip of the iceberg. And like I said, there have been hundreds of such videos and they are releasing them the taping and releasing them themselves. We have just about a minute and a half left. Your synopsis of Biden's trip, uh, did it really accomplish anything? And is it a demonstration that the coalition of U.S. allies is stronger or as a result of Biden's trip, are we really basically in a holding pattern? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the U.S. is pushing for Europe to ban basically all Russian, you know, to to suspend purchase of all Russian energy, gas, oil and, you know, the European countries that rely the most on that. And, and Russia provides some almost 40 percent of, of Europe's energy are saying, well, that's impossible. Our economies would completely shut down. Um, and, and there are some political figures out there, including some of the countries that rely most on Russian energy, that seem perfectly willing uh, to, to shut down their own economies, uh, at, you know, at least rhetorically at this point. But that's obviously not going to happen. So once again, the U.S. walks out of it. Hungary has uh, departed, uh, ad, as well as several other European countries, from supplying arms uh, to uh, the regime in Kiev, uh, something that it's getting a lot of vitriol for. For, but uh, asserting that it is looking after Hungary's interests here and that their interests are not the Kiev regime's interests. So I, I think this was a, a, a big flop. Um, and it actually what it actually showed is the division in in NATO, you know, uh, led by Joe Biden, uh, as he thinks it is uh, not the unity. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. This, I think, is an odd story to say the least. The Daily Mail reports Hunter Biden 
did help secure millions in funding for U.S. contractor in Ukraine specializing in deadly pathogen research. Laptop emails reveal raising more questions about the disgraced son of the then vice president. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch, and he's the author of the piece, The Battle of Ukraine and the War It's Part of, Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So it's reported that the Russian, well, the Russian government held a press conference Thursday claiming that Hunter Biden helped finance a U.S. military bioweapons research program in Ukraine. However, the allegations were branded a brazen propaganda ploy to justify President Putin's invasion of Ukraine and so discord. But emails and correspondence obtained by the Daily Mail from Hunter's abandoned laptop show the claims may well be true. Jim Cavanaugh, your thoughts? Well, we now know that Hunter Biden is not only a brilliant uh, natural gas producer and, and a, not only and a phenomenal that, artist. I was going to say that you beat me. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Line. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jim. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Not only a great modern artist, but also a high-level biologist. <laughs> 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 so he's a, he's, a, he's a jack of, he's a master of all trades, and or a jack of whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is incredible. Uh, you know, what the Russians put out there was true information that they discovered, and whether it comes from Russia or not, it's true. Uh, and Biden had his hands, his greasy little hands, in, in, in this pie, too. You know, obviously, at one level, this is just another tawdry example of him go, looking out, trying to, you know, make a buck wherever he can. And he had the connections to do it, but it's precisely because he was the son of the vice president that he was able to get involved in all this stuff. And this stuff is important, dangerous biosecurity, high-level, vicious pathogens that people are working on that can be used for bioweapons, whether they, you know, you're never going to, probably very difficult to find out whether it was just, you know, defensive or offensive research, because it's the same research. But it's nasty stuff. The Department of Defense is involved in it. This Metabiota, another meta company, <laughs> meta is a cool prefix now, I guess, uh, you know, and companies that were involved in uh, there's another company here S and B or something that involved in but there was a big that, that was the actual the general contractor for this that Metabiota was a subcontractor of which helped to build the the Wuhan lab so you know the point is that this story just changed the name Biden to Trump and this would be all over the news this would be and and you know I'm not a Trump fan but everybody who likes Trump knows this you know. This would be the son of the vice president getting using his position and his father's influence to get this and to deal with building up bioweapons labs or, you know, potentially bioweapons labs, biopathogen labs. I mean, this is crazy and it should be investigated. And glad the, the, the Daily Mail is doing it. But, you know, now it's going to be pushed to the back burner because it, it, it undermines the confidence in the American war in Ukraine. You know, Jim, here's something that I, I, I want to get your thoughts on. And, and you got to add this in because it's like Russiagate. I keep saying, you know, it's a lot deeper than people talk about, want, want to admit. At the time, if we remember a while back, Donald Trump 
talked to Zelensky and said something about, hey, I want an investigation into the, the Trump and into the Biden people. Well, in hindsight, in the sight, knowing what we know now about Zelensky, that was never going to happen. But here's my point. And the uh, Donald Trump was uh, impeached over that. Right. At the time. The FBI had this laptop, but they didn't tell anybody that they had the laptop. So at the time, all of these things that we're finding out now, bit by bit, the tawdry details and the things that clearly point to illegal, immoral, unethical activity, the FBI had all of it. If they'd have come forth at that time and said, oh, yeah, well, we kind of got a lot of bad stuff, the impeachment wouldn't have went forward. If they'd have came out at the time that the the newspapers were saying, oh, and maybe it's not his. Oh, it's all the Russian stuff. So the FBI is complicit in everything. They're sitting there holding the goods and they allowed all of it to be called a lie. They allowed the president to be impeached, all of this stuff. And they had the goods, which means the FBI is dirty from the beginning to the end. Jim Cavanaugh. Well, look, this is what I'm saying about what the Trump people think. And they're right. There was a concerted campaign from before the election and through Trump's presidency, the media and the FBI and the intelligence agencies were out to get Trump. They knew about this. The media people in, in 2020, when this came out, you know, they might not have been sure it was not uh, the, the laptop was not valid, but they certainly weren't sure it wasn't. And they knew darn well it probably was. And they deliberately suppressed it because they were working for the Biden campaign. There's no other way to put this. That's 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 fairer. I mean, and as I say, if this was something that involved Donald Trump's sons, you would have been went all over the place. And uh, so you have this situation, which is. People think it's all right because it's anti-Trump and, you know, so what? But this is the intelligence agencies, the media uh, 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 joining up to in, to change the political landscape, to change the presidency, to either prevent it from being nominated or, or to prevent it from being elected or to try and impeach him. And they knew about it. Every level of this, not just the FBI, but media executives and media pundits who promoted the idea that it's all Russian gay, Russian disinformation, they all knew for the most part that it was a load of crap. They were kind of convincing themselves for their own <laughs> virtue signaling that internal virtually signaling, no, we've got we to pretend this is not, this is all disinformation. So this is what we're involved in now in this country. And it's very, very bad because, you know, you have to, be skeptical of everybody, and you have to be skeptical of everybody's skepticism. <laughs> I mean, and their, their, their insistence that they're certain about what's not true, which they are not. There's another thing here, another question that this begs for me, and that is during the Obama administration, Vice President Joe Biden was known as the commissar of the Ukraine. So while Vice President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, is sitting in a boardroom with Metabiota saying, well, you know, my dad is the vice president of the United States and I'd like to help you secure millions of dollars for your chemical weapons or biological weapons funding. Or while Hunter Biden is sitting in a boardroom 
with Ukrainian gas firm Burisma saying, well, you know, my father is the vice president of the United States and I'd like to work out a multi-billion dollar gas deal with you. At some point, you're saying nobody picks up the phone and calls Joe Biden and says, hey, Joe, you know, your son is sitting in boardrooms cutting these multi-million dollar deals. I mean, I'm trying I'm waiting for that connection to be made. Am I wrong, Jim Kavanaugh? Yeah, I mean, not only that, but Biden, don't forget, was the guy who boasted about the fact that he blackmailed the Ukrainian government. Correct. Firing the prosecutor that was that was looking into Burisma. Correct. Uh, so, and he wouldn't give them the billion dollars of American foreign aid until or whatever billion. I think it was some billion dollars until right. they fired that prosecutor. And he boasted about that. But you also have the fact that in these emails that came out in 2019, and were, they were, first of all, they were authentic, they were verified uh, last September in this book. I forget the guy who wrote the book about this, who verified the emails. So what the Times did now was just telling along and finally giving up and saying, okay, we are putting our imprimatur as the New York Times that these are verified. But we all, we knew this. <laughs> uh, uh, but in those emails, there were a lot of references not the not this stuff about this is now that stuff about the biolabs, but the emails we've had before about Burisma, et cetera, and all the Hunter Biden's dealings with uh, with Ukraine. There were references. Oh yeah, let's we're going to make ten percent to the big guy. Mm-hmm. References to the big guy, which you know looks to the naked eye that they're talking about Joe Biden. They're talking about giving Joe Biden himself a cut. So this is something that certainly. It's reasonable to investigate. It's reasonable to ask that this be investigated for the corruption that might be involved there. I don't know about it, but the point is that this is the kind of thing, you know, people do. And we see it all over the place for the last three years. If, if it's evidence that points to a conclusion that people don't like, it's not evidence. <laughs> it, you, don't, you don't have evidence unless you have the proof. Smoking gun proof. On the other side, if there's an innuendo that's an innuendo about Donald Trump, then we could talk about that for the next time. That's evidence that we have to investigate. And this is the difference. And everybody knows it. And everybody sees it. You know, Jim, the other thing is, too, that's very important is the media. I mean, I was just looking at Yahoo News. Tucker echoes the Kremlin and tries to tie in Hunter Biden with a supposed Ukrainian bioweapons lab. Well, that was before the more information came out. But the bottom line is this whole thing about we're here to fight disinformation, misinformation, Kremlin misinformation is now clearly revealed as intelligence and media operations to actually press valid information that these people are doing the uh, they're turning reality inside out and simply using words that if they were true would be correct yeah we want to stop this information but these are people are liars and frauds and this is now the united that the bottom line is the intelligence community has been let loose on the american people jim yeah it is alice in wonderland stuff and uh and this is the case. They are the biggest sources of misinformation and disinformation and lies. You know, all of these things have kind of different meanings. You can be deceiving people by hiding things from them. <laughs> Even if you're not directly lying to them, you are hiding things. The lies of omission, that's a deception. And it's a deliberate deception. And, you know, people have this. Uh, sold this notion that only the Russians have disinformation. And any, anything that is 
Not only that, but that anything that disagrees with the, the, the establishment narrative must have come from Russia. This is crazy. I mean, uh, but uh, and everybody's a Russian agent, who, uh, Russian disinformation. And it's impossible to believe. You believe by default that anything the United States government or the intelligence agencies or the, their media allies says is true, unless proven otherwise. And you believe by default that anything that comes out of Russia or anything related to Russia is false, unless proven otherwise. <laughs> you know, so that's the op- that's the position we have. And then you believe by default that anything that disagrees with the standard line comes from Russia. And this is a crazy situation, epistemologically ridiculous, okay? It's the opposite of science. It's the opposite of truth. It's the opposite of investigating truth. It's the opposite of journalistic integrity. And we're, we, it, it just, they just dig themselves deeper and deeper into this. And uh, uh, we're all kind of trapped in it and having to negotiate our way through it very carefully. We have just about a minute and a half left. So the way that all of this first came to light, we were told that, oh, this is going to be a Russian disinformation campaign. But then Victoria Nuland testifies before the Senate, no, these labs do exist, but it's still going to be a Russian disinformation campaign. So this, the Obviously, the disinformation is proving to be valid information. Jim Cavanaugh, we got a minute. Yeah, I mean, the Russians were telling the truth about this. And they had to, They first they tried to deny that it was true. Then they said, okay, it's true, but it's not what you think it is. Then you look into it, I mean, it's kind of amazing to me. I'm surprised myself. These are clearly related to Department of Defense work. This is Defense Department uh, funding, et cetera, so this clearly very dangerous things they're working on here. And now you're supposed to, so then they turn that into, oh yeah, there are bioweapons there, but they're Russians. <laughs> the <laughs> Russian technology is the bioweapons against us. So it's this preemptive, uh, you know, false flag, preemptive false flag, turning your, the, the, the nasty things that you've done into a prediction of the nasty things that they're going to do. It's just crazy. And uh, we all have to be very careful about it. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that insight. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Black Agenda Report has a piece entitled, Ukraine, War and the Challenge of Human Rights in the United States and Beyond. The U.S. justifies wars of aggression in the name of human rights. The term has no meaning domestically either, as the people's needs are subordinated to those of the ruling class. For further insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a former vice presidential candidate for the Green Party, co-founder of Black Alliance for Peace, and he's the author of this article, Ajamu Baraka. As always, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. You know, in reading your piece, it made me think of two things, uh, both coming out of Dr. King's famous uh, Riverside Baptist Church speech, where he said that war was the enemy of the poor, 
and the other in talking about Vietnam, he said, we must be perceived as strange liberators when you look at this through the eyes of the Vietnamese. Your thoughts, Ajamu Baraka? Well, Dr. King was absolutely right. And it was that rationale that um, was, was presented to the U.S. public in the 1960s. Uh, that was the foundation of the initial support for the Vietnam um, conflict. But of course, as a consequence of the work done by uh, organizations like SNCC uh, and other black uh, liberation organizations, and eventually Dr. King, um, and the anti-war movement that developed out of the civil rights movement, those perceptions were, were reversed. And people began to understand the true nature of the conflict um, in Vietnam. Uh, and they also began to understand, too, that uh, it wasn't just about Vietnam, but it was about uh, the, the interests of a uh, uh, that was bent on using war to advance their particular interests. And as a consequence of that kind of new consciousness, if you will, or temporary uh, awareness, uh, it became very difficult for the U.S. to uh, commit U.S. troops directly. Uh, for quite some time. We all remember that was the so-called uh, Vietnam syndrome, uh, something that they uh, struggled with for almost two decades to try to reverse. But yes, it is this rationale that we've got to have to deal with because that rationale has returned uh, in a new form. Uh, that new form now is a humanitarian interventionism uh, and the responsibility to protect. This is a new sort of formation of that same kind of appeal to the public uh, and appeal to the best instincts of the public. The suggestion that U.S. Uh, interventions are benevolent, uh, that uh, uh, the U.S. interventions are there to protect the people and to advance human rights. And this evolved out of the 1990s around this concept of humanitarian intervention uh, and then the responsibility to protect. This serves today as the primary rationale uh, for U.S. interventions. Uh, you know, Ajamu, just last week, Joe Biden was speaking and he said, quote, with regard to food shortage, yes, we did talk about food shortage and it's going to be real. The price of the sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia. It's imposed upon a, an awful lot of countries, including European countries and our own country as well. It's gotten to the point where the U.S. is saying it's not enough that we tax you. We take your tax monies. We spend them all on war. We give you nothing in return. Now we're going to make you suffer and pay even more. It's unconscionable that now the U.S. empire is saying we're going to make people suffer even more just so we can move towards our next neocon project. Your thoughts? Yes. I mean, I, I refer to this in the piece. I called it a capitalist uh, tax that the uh, working class in the U.S. had not even, uh, the working class in the U.S. never really recovered from the economic crisis of 2008-2009 before it was then faced with the realities of a new crisis uh, coming out of COVID that devastated the economy and devastated the working class. And before we could recover from that, we had to deal with the consequences of of this collapse uh, primarily inflation that's, uh, it, that translates into a, a, a decline or a, a reduction in, in the wages of workers. Um, and now we've been asked again to, to sacrifice 
uh, with higher prices for food, uh, for gas, uh, all because the, of the incompetency of the Biden administration that created a conflict uh, in which now everybody has to pay a cost except for the ruling elements that are in the uh, military-industrial complex, uh, the energy sector. Uh, they're doing quite nicely. So, no, this is a, a serious uh, situation that in many countries can uh, translate into uh, significant social unrest, in fact, revolutions. But uh, in the U.S., we still have a, a relatively passive response uh, to this incredible increase in gas prices uh, and the creeping increases in food prices. So it is right. You, it's unfair. It is uh, something that uh, is, is, is really backward. Uh, but the ruling elements will continue to pursue those kinds of policies until there is a social eruption uh, coming from the working class. And that, unfortunately, we don't see coming anytime soon. You write the propagandists are pushing a line that essentially says that in the name of, quote, freedom, end quote, and supporting Ukraine, the U.S. public should shoulder the sacrifice of higher fuel and food prices. I want to focus on the on the propaganda here, because one of the things that Garland and I have been talking about on the show is how the rhetoric has changed. Uh, Post-World uh, War II going into the Cold War, the enemy was communism, and democracy had to stop the, the red tide of communism. Now we're not fighting communism. It is the, the enemy has become very personalized in authoritarianism. Putin is an authoritarian. Uh, Maduro is an authoritarian. Xi is an authoritarian. And so it's become very personal and very individual. Do you see this, this analysis as being valid? And is it really a change in the narrative? No, it's no change in the narrative. I mean, it's, it's propaganda uh, techniques that are used to galvanize public support for the ruling uh, element by reducing the conflicts to a conflict of personalities as opposed to an understanding of the structural kinds of interests, the, the class interests that are in play. Even the situation with Ukraine, it is not just about uh, Putin and versus uh, uh, Biden. This is about the long-term interests and long-term strategic objectives of, of U.S. capital. Their target is Russia, but the real concern that they have is uh, to pursue policies that would disconnect the European market that they want to continue to control from the Russian market. Uh, so it's about capitalist competition. And when you have this kind of intense competition, it, it always and history has proven this to be the case, it always leads to military confrontations. So in, in, in order to hide that, you know, you, you, you reduced it to this, this, this moralistic, this dramatic conflict between individuals, good and bad. Uh, but what we have to do is cut through the, the, the nonsense and really help to expose what's really in play, that we have a capitalist oligarchy that wants to mobilize public opinion to support their aggressive military actions around the world in order for them to try to maintain 
uh, their global economic domination. We've got to cut through that, make, make sure people understand what's really in play so that they are not manipulated into acting out and supporting interests that are primarily, uh, primarily opposed to their own interests. You know, I also think that the important, you know, you're saying we have to cut through that. And the important part also is the corporate owned media in the United States who is constantly pushing falsehoods to get people to support things that are not in their interest. What are your thoughts on the media in the U.S. and the West? It is, it's, it's pathetic. And the, the, this, this, this attempt to try to mobilize public opinion to support more war in Ukraine is just another example of it that here we have a situation where not only uh, are neoliberals uh, pretending to be concerned about the, the right uh, in, in the U.S., uh, they are, uh, are supporting a rightist uh, government in Ukraine uh, that is bent on pulling the U.S. and Europe and, and indeed the world into a conflict that, have, that can have a, a devastating impact on collective humanity. Um, and there's very little pushback. There's very little opposition at this point. In fact, for example, you know, there was a big uh, uh, potential controversy around the Oscars. We had these liberals who claimed to be not uh, committed to nonviolence who wanted uh, uh, President Zelensky to have a moment to make an appeal to, to, the, to the Oscar audience. And what would be the, the gist of that appeal? Support for more war. So this... This, 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 this uh, entertainment and media push uh, toward war only benefits the interests of that minority of the population. But that is what the corporate press does because the corporate press has an, an, an ideological commitment uh, to that agenda. And that is what we've got to also attempt to try to deal with. But it's very difficult when they are able to control the narratives in the way that they do. Ajamu Baraka, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Glad to be be here. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Asia Times has a story, Why India Won't Readily Leave Russia for the U.S. Washington vows to replace Russia as India's top arms, energy, and diplomatic partner, but a fast pivot isn't viable. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a widely acclaimed speaker, writer, journalist, and political analyst. His writings and analysis of economics and U.S. foreign policy have been cited in diverse outlets such as Forbes magazine, CNN, Democracy Now!, Press TV, Telesur, and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. He is Caleb Moppin. As always, Caleb, welcome back. Sure. Glad to be here. I have the opportunity. Glad to be here as always. So the United States is engaged in a full court press to woo and pressure India into the Western camp, a carrot and stick approach that, if not carefully calibrated, may do more harm than good to U.S.-India relations. 
but Caleb, the U.S. doesn't seem to be winning this uh, winning this press. Your thoughts? Sure. Well, it's very surprising to hear a leader of Pakistan praise a decision or anything done by a leader of India. But the way Imran Khan uh, recently spoke up uh, regarding the oil uh, and the way uh, India is proceeding to cooperate with Russia, regardless of U.S. wishes, uh, that's a pretty dramatic sign. And, uh, you know, India, they continue to buy uh, the S-400 missile system from Russia. Uh, They continue to have economic relations with Russia, and they don't seem to be excited uh, about this uh, global isolate Russia campaign being led by the Biden administration in the United States. Um, India, at this point, uh, you have the Modi government there that is a very right-wing government, uh, but they more or less have the understanding that Russia is an important trading partner. And they have concerns about the fertilizer, uh, which they would like to import from Russia. They have concerns about other aspects of their economy, and it seems like they are just thinking that the United States really doesn't have their interests at heart. Now, the Trump administration seemed to really have Modi and the Indian government on board with their anti-China campaign. Um, And it seemed like Modi and Trump were able to kind of cooperate. There was there was, you know, some understanding between the two of them. Uh, But now uh, that seems to have completely fallen apart. And again, this kind of points to, you know, like there are subtle differences between Democrats and Republicans. The Obama administration really seemed to diss Modi. Um, and, uh, you know, play up the idea that he was Islamophobic, whereas the Trump administration seemed a little friendlier toward Modi, whereas now Biden is trying to get Modi on his side, but it seems like Modi doesn't quite trust him, and the United States isn't, you know, isn't really going all in with India. Uh, So we have kind of a shift, but at the same time, India, when it really gets down to it, they just think their economic interest is not in joining Washington's campaign to isolate Russia. It's that simple. You know, one of the things that I'm hearing from people in the global south is the hypocrisy and the contradictions of the actions of the U.S. and NATO over the past, you know, 20, 30 years for been centuries, literally, for the colonialist powers, as opposed to their sudden uh, about face, their moral 180 on Ukraine. And now Australia in particular, two stories. And in the first one, they're saying we have to impose new sanctions on Russia over invading Ukraine. That's unacceptable. We can't have anything like that. It's outside of the, you know, what we uh, we believe in. And now they're saying they must be ready to invade the Solomon Islands because the Solomon Islands simply said we are entertaining, allowing China to build some t- sort of a base here where they can bring their ships or submarines to port or whatever. And it's not necessarily like a military base, but more like a, um, a repair base. But whatever the case, the hypocrisy of ha- Australia between these two issues, you can't invade a country who's got weapons or you can't go to war with a country who is attacking attacking the People's Republic of Donetsk on a daily basis. But this, uh, these islands over here simply made a business decision and we'll invade them. Your thoughts on that, Caleb? Well, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to look at how Australia's economy has been doing lately. And, you know, trade with China has really been good for Australia. You know, they are a, you know, an, an Anglo-Western, you know, not Western in, in the global uh, geopolitical sense, but, but, you know, aligned with the United States, considered to be a first world country that, you know, that is right located near Asia. 
And they have really benefited from China's boom of economic development. A trade with China has been really good for Australia's economy. And then this AUKUS deal uh, where they, you know, they entered this alliance uh, with the United States and with Britain uh, to, you know, to kind of build up military forces against China. The Trump administration's hostility to China, which Australia went along with, uh, all of that hasn't really benefited Australia at all. I mean, Australians have largely suffered. It has hurt their economy. So there have to be some Australians who are sitting there and saying, okay, like, are we really benefiting from this? I mean, what are we really getting as a country from being hostile to China? Um, it's certainly, you know, what the United States wants with seeing China as a competitor. It's certainly what the U.K. seems to want. But, you know, for Australia, for, for not for the whole global Anglosphere, but for Australia, what is the real gain there? And the idea that the Solomon Islands, they're not even really talking about building a military base there. It's just like a place that China could could port there. It would not be like a military installation by China. It would just be some kind of agreement where Chinese Chinese boats could go there, et cetera. And the fact that that is being met with the threat of an invasion um, is, is particularly absurd. And, I mean, this fits in with a whole pattern of, you know, they talk about the Asian pivot of the U.S. military, building up U.S. military forces in Asia. It's been a huge boon for uh, defense contractors. They've made loads of money pouring weapons into Asia. Uh, and, you know, there was that transatlantic partnership, uh, the, what is it, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership that the Obama administration pushed, which ultimately didn't go through. Trump killed it, but the idea was to create a trade zone where you're either with China or with the United States. And that didn't ultimately go through, but, uh, but it was something that the United States was, was quite excited about. Uh, you have to look at all of this, and there have to be some Australians that are sitting there and saying, okay, is this really in our economic interest as a country, or is this just kind of what the United States wants and we do what they say? And Caleb, this sounds eerily reminiscent to a, a number of months ago. I want to say Vietnam. There was a story that Vietnam was looking to widen it, one of its ports, and China was assisting in that process, and then the United States comes in and says, no, Vietnam, you can't do this business with China because widening this port is only going to have a military impact, and we can't allow that. But So, so there just seems to be a, a pattern here. But I, I want to go back to the India issue because India abstaining in all the five votes in the U.N. to condemn uh, the military uh, intervention uh, in Ukraine – India is just not going along with the U.S. plan here, but the United States wanted to tout the Quad as being this incredibly powerful block that the United States was creating. So it, what really seems to be happening here is that the covers are getting pulled off of America policy on a number of fronts, and the emperor does not seem to have any clothes. Sure. Well, I mean, there's a couple layers to this. Uh, you know, in Saudi Arabia, I'm sorry, in, in India, they have dealt with a problem of Islamic terrorism. Uh, you know, what they call Diobandis, that Saudi Arabia has paid for these terrorist fanatical Wahhabi training schools in India. And people, you know, of Muslim heritage who do suffer great amounts of discrimination in India, no question about it. The Indian government and Modi himself is tied to some brutal massacres, etc. But people associated, you know, with, with the Muslim community in India go to these Diobandi schools and become radicalized, and that has led to terrorism. And India has spoken up about this, and there's concern about it in Pakistan also. Pakistanis have spoken up about the danger of these Diobandi schools. So 
when the United States uh, was, you know, supporting Wahhabi terrorists in Syria to overthrow the Syrian government, you had Modi and a lot of folks in India saying, wait a second, we've dealt with these same Wahhabi Saudi funded schools and the problems that they've caused over here. Uh, no, we think the Syrian government has a right to protect itself from Wahhabi extremism and, and terrorism. So, you know, the United States, uh, you know, the United States is going all in and trying to destabilize Syria with these same Saudi-linked Wahhabi schools. India is opposing it. Russia comes to Syria's aid. And you see a situation where now uh, we have a situation with Ukraine where it seems like India is saying, they're looking at this and saying, okay, you know, we know about these Diobandi schools. We know about what the USA just did in Syria. We know that that Russia was on our side in Syria and that they thought maybe spreading Wahhabi extremist terrorism throughout Syria was not a good idea. Um, maybe the United States isn't exactly right here about this Ukraine stuff also. And again, you know, Modi is definitely not a leftist. He's not a, an anti-imperialist or a Marxist. He's just kind of, you know, just a straight up, you know, what they might call a, a, a bourgeois nationalist. He's thinking in the interests of India. And, and a pragmatist. Yeah, and it just, it seems to him that you know, that buying those S-400 missiles from Russia is to India's benefit. Doing business, getting that fertilizer from Russia is to his benefit. And uh, going along with the United States and their campaign to hate Russia, not so much. So I want to be sure people didn't think I was confusing or saying that India was in the quad. When I mentioned the quad, I was just talking about Pakistan not going blindly along with America's interests either. Go, go ahead, Garland. Oh, what I was going to say is this, Caleb, and it seems like what has happened, the U.S. empire has taken such an imperial, an extreme imperialist position now that they force countries like India that weren't per se anti-imperialist, but wanted to be somewhat, somewhat independent into a block. You're going to take either the super pro-imperialist block with the U.S. empire and NATO or an anti-imperialist block with, you know, the global south and China and Russia. And they've kind of created an environment where you got to pick one of the two for right now, at least. And they're forcing a country like India with a billion and a half people to take an anti-imperialist position. Caleb. Yeah, I mean, the United States is used to a global environment where they can just make ultimatums and say with us or against us and win. And the changing face of the global stage is one where if they make those kind of ultimatums, ultimately they're going to lose a lot of people. And a lot of people will say, okay, I guess we're with Russia and China then. Um, and again, it, it kind of shows that the Biden administration is playing with a bit of an outdated foreign policy book, right? They think it's the 90s when they could just destroy Iraq with those sanctions that, that killed hundreds of thousands of people. Madeleine Albright said it was worth the cost. Uh, they think they can just, you know, isolate Cuba like they did in the 90s or, or cause a big famine in North Korea and just cancel North Korea and cause food shortages, et cetera. It's not the same situation. I mean, there is a rising block of alternative, you know, players in the geopolitical stage. And uh, the United States is going to have to figure out how to operate in a world where other countries have leverage and we don't have the unipolarity that seemed to define things in the 90s after the fall of the Soviet Union. And, and all of this, all of this American hegemony, it seems to be weakening a lot of the ties that the United States has relied on, NATO being one. It could end up being that we wind up with a weaker NATO than a stronger NATO after all of this is over. We've got about 30 seconds. Um, sure. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, Joe Biden's comments about wanting to overthrow the Russian president are being met with quite a bit of condemnation from Britain, from France. And a lot of these NATO countries are going, wait a second. OK, we were with you at the beginning, 
But this isn't supposed to be a long-term thing, and uh, this might have economic consequences we really don't appreciate. Caleb Moppin, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Sure thing. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garla Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. It's reported in the Jerusalem Post and a number of other outlets, terror in Hadera. Two border police officers killed in what they claim to be an ISIS attack. Uh, Two border police officers were killed and 12 injured. They report ISIS claims responsibility, defense establishment on high alert. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So the two border police officers killed, both of them were 19, and they've talked to members of their family, and they say that this is one of the hardest nights for for these families. And let me say, Laith, anytime anyone is killed in a situation like this, it is, it is a, a horrific event. But I think if we were go if we were to go into Gaza or go into other Palestinian areas and see how they daily and nightly uh, are being indiscriminately attacked, not only by the army but just by armed settlers, um, it's it's hard to find a tear to shed. Let me put it that way, Laith Maroof. Yes, definitely, and uh, you know at least the target clearly was uh, uniformed. In combatants, that's what these, uh, the, you know, Israeli military forces that were targeted are. So it cannot be called terrorism when it is targeting uh, military forces. Definitely it is a combat operation. Uh, it is very weird the claim that ISIS is responsible for this attack because, as we know, ISIS has never attacked uh, the Zionist colony, neither did Al-Qaeda. And uh, in fact, when ISIS occupied much of the border with the Golan Heights uh, in South Syria, they were aided with uh, equipment, uh, arms, and military support and and medical support by the Zionists. So it's... uh, surprising and especially because this attack happened at the same moment that you know much of the vessels the air vessels that normalized with the zionist colony were meeting under its totalage in the uh, naqab desert Uh, and so it's like egypt the united arab emirates bahrain morocco and the israelis with the americans there even so You know, clearly this attack was either a lone wolf situation. These are citizens, by the way, Palestinian citizens of the 
colony. They're not like from the West Bank. They attacked inside and they are citizens of Israel. Um, and uh, uh, either that and or clearly the uh, ISIS was activated to give some legitimacy and to the Zionists while these uh, Arab vessels are there who uh, condemned this attack and uh, to tarnish Palestinian resistance with the label of ISIS. You know, there there's a lot of um, and, and I, you know, don't want to tie everything to the Ukraine um, crisis, but there are a lot of strange things going on in um, the Middle East. And there's some odd bed, uh, bedfellows. Um, the UAE and is now publicly embracing Syria. There's an interesting article in, in Middle East Eye where basically they argue that the relationship has always flourished kind of um, undercover. And now they're just basically coming out of the closet with it. Your thoughts on that? On that. Well, much of the Syrian uh, upper class had a lot of uh, its money in the UAE before the war. And, uh, you know, the UAE didn't want to lose that connection. So they kept, you know, back channels. But definitely the Syrian leadership knows that the UAE, the Saudis and the Qataris spent trillions of dollars uh, to destroy the government of Syria and to uh, break up the country uh, to make it more digestible for the Zionists and the Americans to control. And uh, they, this is why, you know, that meeting with all these meetings that happened after, it's clear that it was an attempt to reapproach the Syrian government. Um, but if you see the um, messages coming out from the Zionists today after this meeting yesterday which, with these vessels, uh, they're speaking as if now they lead the Arab League. Uh, <laughs> so um, I think there is, uh, there is, you know, contradictions and there's things that the United Arab Emirates or the Saudis or others wish that Syria can exit the axis of resistance, but definitely Syria is not going to uh, exit that alliance. Uh, it had a chance to do so in 2003 with uh, Condoleezza Rice, and in 2006 and seven and 2010, all of these times, many billions of dollars were offered to Assad by these Gulf vessels to hand over basically Syria to the American side and exit the uh, axis of uh, resistance, but it never accepted that. Definitely, it will not accept that today. There's an interesting statement in this uh, uh, Middle East Eye piece. When it comes to Syria and Iran, despite a strong security relationship, Syria does not tow the Iranian line in Lebanon and Iraq, two key regional battlegrounds where both the Saudis and the Emiratis need Damascus. Ultimately, the UAE has a strong business and familiar base in Syria that never disappeared and has only recently reemerged from the shadows. That, to me, makes it sound like it, this is more of a shot at Iran trying to indicate that Iran is not as influential as it claims to be. But I would push back and say, but Iran, I don't know, has ever claimed that it was that influential. I, I, this, to me, seems to be uh, a slight based on inference more than fact. Am I misreading this? Well, clearly, 
No, you're not misreading it. And clearly there's uh, much uh, media that is produced in the Zionist colony and many of the Gulf countries uh, that is full of propaganda of what they wish, pretending as if it's a fact. So on the one hand, you know, Iran does not control the government of Syria or Hezbollah. It's in alliance with uh, these uh, other actors and they have a relationship that is um, on, on equal basis. That's, that's a fact. On the other hand, uh, you know, there is this, um, you know, allowing of uh, differences specifically uh, between when the issue is the internal politics of a state. So Hezbollah, for instance, Iran doesn't interfere in any of its, um, you know, workings inside Lebanon. And, and that is very clear because if you see the alliances and, um, and how it's working out in the government in Lebanon. Similarly, in Syria, uh, Syria, uh, you know, stood with Iran since 1979, since the uh, in revolution. And there's this deep relationship between the two countries uh, that is based on um, brotherly and equal relations and the uh, strategic goal of ending Western hegemony in Western Asia. Another uh, interesting article, Press TV, uh, the Palestinian uh, president slams West double standards on Russia-Ukraine war as Israel walks free. And, and I want to ask you that also, you, is that something that you're hearing a lot of talk about, uh, you know, in your circles or friends, et cetera? Well, uh, you know, whatever comes out from uh, President Abbas, uh, much of the people in the region um, Palestinians specifically laugh at it because, you know, it, it is in the power of uh, President Abbas to confront the occupation if they if he wishes to. He but he is not confronting the occupation. He could cut ties with the Zionist authorities, but he's not. He could end uh, security coordination between his uh, intelligence forces and the Israelis, and he's not doing that. Therefore, anytime um, President Abbas makes statements that are uh, critical of the uh, normalizing states, uh, Arab states, it's, uh, you know, it doesn't hold any authority. Uh, and therefore, I, I think much of the discussion in the last few weeks in regards to President Abbas in the Palestinian circles has been about who's going to replace him. He's a very old man, and at any moment uh, he will be dying, and or uh, and then is you know the Fatah is left with no head at a crucial moment with of the uh, Palestinian struggle. Um, and so now we hear about all the scheming that is happening between the Saudis, the Qataris, uh, the Emiratis about, and the Israelis themselves about trying to groom basically a replacement to him. Um, and so that's uh, really was uh, much of the coverage in the uh, news uh, around President Abbas in the region. Abbas said the current events in Europe have shown blatant double standards. 
Despite the crimes of the Israeli occupation that amounted to ethnic cleansing and racial discrimination, we find no one who is holding Israel responsible for behaving as a state above the law. Abbas is correct in that assessment. But to your point, Laith, A, there was no, there seemed to be, let me put it that way, there seemed to be no response from Blinken when he said it, other than we're working as best we can with both parties to bring peace to the region. Uh, so it was a it was a very accurate, very clear statement. And for him to say this directly to Tony Blinken at a press conference, good thing to do, but it's almost as though, so what's your point? <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly it. You know, so he has nothing to lose. Uh, he, he, you know, the Americans have no choice but him until they groom somebody to replace him. Uh, and he was trying to score points in front of the Palestinian public, uh, which he definitely did. But ultimately, the Palestinian people are, you know, have are fed up of uh, the multiple outbursts of Abbas that are not backed by any actions. All he needs to do is just cut relations with the Zionists and uh, end the Oslo agreement as he should, it's in his power. And uh, so nobody is to blame for the situation of the Palestinian people in terms of their how the Western powers ignore uh, the Palestinians and their pleas except uh, Abbas and the failing leadership around him. It just, it basically sounds as though you're saying, and we've only got about a minute, the Palestinians currently don't have any international leadership that they recognize as credible. That's the biggest problem. And it's been now, Palestinians are going in circles for the last uh, decade, at least, trying to figure out how to reform the PLO in ways that uh, make, you know, Fatah more, its representation at the PLO more in align with the reality of how many people actually support Fatah and to bring in all the, um, you know, parties that are outside the PLO, like uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad and many others, uh, to give them uh, actual representation. Because the PLO is the only body internationally, including the United Nations, that is acknowledged as the representatives of the Palestinian people. It's not the PA uh, or Fatah alone. And therefore, if there's no reformation of the PLO to make it actually, uh, you know, reflect the realities of Palestinians today uh, in 2022, it's uh, we're in a in a really bad situation. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Venezuelan analysis has a piece, Bolivarianism versus Monroeism, Latin America's pursuit of integration. Hugo Chavez's 
1998 Bolivarian Revolution opened a new era in Latin America's struggle for sovereignty and self-determination. The Venezuelan president and other progressive leaders built a number of multilateral organizations to promote economic, cultural, and political integration in the continent. Where is all that now as we look to 2022 and beyond? For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. She's the editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and author of Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents, Margaret Kimberly. As always, Margaret, welcome back. Thank you very much. So we know the United States imperialistic response to Bolivarianism, and we know about the Monroe Doctrine and the United States saying that European colonies would not be allowed, nor any of those interests, uh, in America's southern backyard. Your thoughts uh, to where we are now and how a number of these newly elected presidents uh, try to balance these interests? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's very funny. Uh, uh, President Biden recently uh, said, um, you know, Latin America is not in our backyard. It's in our front yard. And he thought it was, he was paying a compliment of some kind. But uh, it was uh, still this old trope of uh, uh, the U.S. being in control of the rest of this hemisphere. Um, and uh, this is something that... Uh, the other nations of this hemisphere have struggled against for the past 200 years. The U.S. has inserted itself in um, elections and coups and sending the Marines uh, to countries throughout the Caribbean and Central America in particular. But there have been coups and other interventions that continue up until this day. The uh, terrible sanctions against Venezuela are just the latest example but I think it's important for us to know that uh, the people of that region have not given up their hope to be truly independent and truly sovereign. So um, these um, uh, groupings and configurations that um, uh, have been inspired by, in particular by the late Hugo uh, Chavez, are still very much alive and important. You know, Margaret, and in looking at this, <clears throat> To me, it seems like this, and, and having been in South America, and you have uh, too, the people in South America want to be able to choose their own leaders and have leaders that will act in the best interest of the masses, right? And the U.S. works to install leaders that will act in the interest of the U.S. oligarchs. It, it, here's the funny thing about it. Last week, Joe Biden was in Europe and said, we're sanctioning Russia, but we're also sanctioning the EU. And by the way, we're also sanctioning the United States. All of you are going to suffer. Now, the rich elite people aren't going to suffer. We're the ones going to suffer. And I thought to myself, they want what we want, and they can't get it, and neither can we. We want leaders that will act on our best interest. So the U.S. oligarchs and its leader, imperial leadership are saying not only will, will Central and South America, Latin America, and Global South, you can't have leaders that will act in your best interest, and neither can the people in the United States. Your thoughts? <laughs> Well, you're you're exactly right. I, you know, Biden was so casual. Yeah, you know, there's going to be food shortages. Uh, the price of wheat's going to go up because uh, Ukraine won't have a harvest, and we're sanctioning Russia. They're sanctioning the entire world, including us. 
and we're supposed to like it. So I suppose the era of some exceptionalism uh, for the people in this country is over, and we're all going to be treated badly, but that's inevitable when you have an oligarchy. And yes, we do have an oligarchy. It doesn't, you know, that word's not synonymous with rich people in Moscow. Um, But uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, As our situation devolves, no one's rights are going to be uh, respected. People all over the world are going to suffer, and we are supposed to, um, to accept it. The other element of the hypocrisy here is, and this isn't a part of the article, but when when you mentioned the Monroe Doctrine in, in Latin America, uh, President Vladimir Putin has been quite bothered over a number of years with the United States reneging on its commitment not to allow NATO to move any further eastward towards Russia as uh, Russia agreed to allow for the reunification of Germany. So now President Putin looks at his borders and he sees all of these NATO countries that are now surrounding his country. The United States tries to bring Ukraine in as a NATO proxy. And finally, Putin says, I've had enough of this. I'm not going to allow this to go any further. So somehow it's wrong for Putin to look at his landscape and his border and say, I'm not going to allow this any further, but it's okay for the United States to tell Venezuela, we don't like your president, we're going to impose a new one, and we're going to seize your assets. Uh, We look at Chile and know that the Chicago boys brought neoliberalism into Chile, and now they say uh, neoliberalism was born in Chile and it has now died in Chile. So the United States, under the Monroe Doctrine, can, can claim Latin America, but Putin can't defend himself against NATO. Oh, absolutely. The U.S. claims the entire planet as a sphere of influence. Uh, I mean, there are U.S. troops in uh, Korea. Why? You know, last time I looked on a map, it's nowhere near the United States. Uh, and yet Russia cannot claim to have concerns literally on its own borders. But that is that's full spectrum dominance. That is the U.S. as the word as the world's bully. So, um, you know, if we think and how did Ukraine get to be in the U.S. sphere of influence? Uh, but countries in this re- region are not supposed to um, claim any rights that the U.S. needs to respect, and uh, the U.S. can declare that uh, 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 an election is invalid if uh, the winner is somebody they don't like or can sanction whom they want or can announce that um, they're going to sanction countries, uh, take particular attention uh, to those uh, countries in the region that are friendly with uh, Russia and China, which, of course, they want to be in order to protect themselves themselves from the U.S. hegemon. So um, this uh, uh, horrible need to uh, claim influence and grab power all over the world is having um, uh, terrible impacts everywhere. Well, Margaret, uh, Mexico has not gone along with the U.S. sanctions on Russia, has pushed back on U.S. imperialism in Central and South America. And what do you know, the head of the United States Northern Command accused Mexico of being the largest base of operations for Russian espionage agencies. Mexico's president has, you know, pushed back saying, you know, look, we're, we're that's a bunch of craziness. But I think we know what's behind this. At least I have a suspicion. Your thoughts, Margaret? 
Well, you know, this is what happens, this, these, these unhinged uh, attacks on other countries. This is what happens when, uh, whenever the U.S. Uh, uh, goes on um, uh, one of its crazy min- missions, this time in Ukraine. So everybody's going to be accused of, you know, having Russian agents. Well, the U.S. has agents all over the world. There are other countries that do as well. But any country that refuses to go along, and there are many countries, you know, when they tell us, you know, Putin is isolated, Russia is isolated, no, it isn't. There are many countries in the U.N. General Assembly who didn't go along with the vote to condemn Russia. They either said no or, well, most of them abstained, but they wouldn't go along with the U.S. So this is something that people here have got to get used to. Uh, But unfortunately, the U.S. is up to its old tricks here and uh, comes up with uh, some um, really fantastic um, uh, uh, charge against Mexico and other countries, I'm sure, will be treated the same way as the U.S. Um, indulges in these very crazy but very dangerous fantasies. But, and when you talk about that, it's, it's more than fantasy when, when President Biden says on the world stage that Putin cannot be allowed to remain in Russia. I mean, the, the, the consequences of that jingoistic rhetoric are incredibly, incredibly dire. And now you have... Uh, an American general saying that there are Russian spies in Mexico, uh, which which then can very quickly become a predicate for American intervention into Mexico. Uh, so this is we cannot underestimate the danger and the peril that is that belies us. Uh, from this from this jingoistic rhetoric. Oh, um, absolutely. You know, when I said fantasy, I didn't mean to dismiss the series. Oh, no, and I weren't. I wasn't trying to indicate that you were. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, but these, but these are. I mean, dare I say the word crazy? The U.S. is not getting rid of Vladimir Putin. It isn't going to happen. We've already seen that the sanctions they have planned a very harsh sanctions on Russia that have uh, caused great damage to their economy. But Russia's not going to fall apart. Um, uh, there are countries that still want their oil. Now Russia has told the Europeans, who depend on them for gas, they're going to have to pay in rubles if they want to keep getting it. So um, this, uh, this notion that um, uh, Putin can be gotten rid of, that there's no political class in Russia, that there's no state in Russia, that the will of and feelings of the Russian people won't count for anything. But this is what happens when you have a country as powerful and yet as stupid as the United States. Uh, We have people who clearly know nothing about the rest of the world. Uh, They have uh, uh, military power, economic power, but they are amateurs and uh, they are, are really out of their minds that they can say these things and think they can make them happen. Uh, they are a great threat. The U.S. government is a great threat to the entire planet. And um, this moment is showing us that. One last thing. Ven- Venezuela has a new social media app. We're seeing, you know, with the with what's going on with social media a- a- in the United States, we're seeing more and more countries, Telegram, et cetera, start to to make the move. I, for one, think it's a very good thing. Uh, your thoughts? we got about a minute. I, I wish I could connect with it. You know, we're seeing with the U.S. controlling uh, with Facebook and Google and all of them, 
uh, being the, the de facto uh, platform for the whole world, but they're getting rid of them. So, you know, the EU, uh, you know, takes channels off of uh, YouTube and then the U.S. takes channels off of YouTube. So what are people going to do? They're not just going to uh, not communicate with each other. So uh, these nations, other nations need independence in a variety of ways. They need technological independence. So they are not uh, dependent on these uh, U.S. platforms, which are so closely aligned with the state. So this is a very positive development, and I'm hoping there are ways for all of us to uh, be able to join them uh, easily. Margaret Kimberly, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that insight, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is an interesting piece in Haiti Liberté entitled The Insulting Biden Law Against Corruption in Haiti. No offense to the leaders of the Haitian political class who marvel at a White House sham marked clearly at the corner of interference. But we cannot, however, remain silent in the face of the shock caused by the promulgation of a signed law on March 15th by President Joe Biden, who dared to ask the Department of State to make an assessment of acts of major corruption committed by the public and private sectors in Haiti. What other way for the president of the United States to continue to attack us, to trample on us, to make fun of us? For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an American human rights labor rights lawyer and political activist. He has contributed articles to Counterpunch, the Huffington Post, and Telesur. He teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Professor Dan Kovalik, as always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Uh, Haiti Liberté continues, the purpose of this maneuver is not a mystery. She shows a deep contempt for the Haitian people and their history, a people exploited by mafia and corrupt imperial clutches that have rendered them to shreds so that all their state institutions are inoperative. Nevertheless, the U.S. does not feel at all embarrassed to speak of corruption in Haiti when it imposes and supports an unfailing regularity many corrupt regimes at home and elsewhere. Your thoughts, Dan Kavalik, what in the world is Joe Biden trying to do here? Well, it's a great question. I mean, first of all, you know, in terms of corruption in Haiti, there was no worse corruption than that of the international NGOs who profited off the 2010 earthquake. I remember uh, one example was the International Red Cross that got a billion dollars in donations from people like me, for example. Uh, who donated. And uh, as uh, the grand total uh, result of that was six houses that they built in uh, in Haiti. So uh, and we know the Clinton Foundation also has been very corrupt there. So, you know, to target Haitians with this anti-corruption uh, uh, legislation or sanctions is just absurd, especially at a time when, frankly, what Haiti needs now is massive amount of financial support. 
the country still hasn't recovered from the earthquake of 2010 and has suffered disaster since then. Uh, you know, when is the U.S. just going to pony up and try to do something, you know, positive for that country? You know, I, I see this also as another example of the incredible hypocrisy that we're witnessing from the U.S. empire, you know, invading countries, overthrowing countries, blowing countries up, and then waking up one day and saying, oh my gosh, somebody invaded a country. That's terrible. Literally passing a law called the Hague Invasion Act that says if any person who's a, if, if a U.S. military or a person from the U.S. government is brought before the Hague for a crime, that the U.S. can use military force to invade it. And so here's my point. With what's going on now with Hunter Biden and the level of corruption that we are finding from the Biden, uh, very, the Biden family in Ukraine, to to for Joe Biden to sign anything saying, yes, we're going to look into corruption in another country is I, it's so absurd. I, I mean, you just throw your hands up in the air and say, how do the people have the gumption to do this, Dan? Yeah, no, it's a classic case of the pot calling the kettle black, isn't it? And look at what we've done to Haiti, you know, supported years of dictatorship there, supported uh, ongoing right wing paramilitary groups that continue to terrorize that country. And then when they did have a progressive uh, president and Father Jean-Bertrand Aristide uh, in 2004, France, Canada, and the U.S. combined to kidnap him, force him onto a plane, and send him to the Central African Republic. I mean, the way Haiti has been treated by the U.S. has been absolutely unforgivable. And again, for them to now single out some sort of corruption there is just – I don't know. It's beyond words, really. But also talk about the tactic of controlled chaos and that what we're seeing there on the ground now is not the unintended result of failed American policy. It is the direct intention of the United States to ensure that instability continues because a stable Haiti winds up being a problem for the United States in in the minds of the elite in, in the United States. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. has been intervening there since even before the U.S. Civil War in response to the fact that Haiti had the first successful slave rebellion in the Western Hemisphere. The U.S. has never forgiven Haiti for that, has invaded Haiti through the U.S. Marines uh, in the early part of the 20th century and went in and stole uh, you know, Haiti's uh, uh, money and gold reserves um, and, again, supported dictatorships and, yes, has kept Haiti off balance uh, for all this time. One of the other examples of this, which Clinton ended up apologizing for after the fact, but he admitted that he instituted food uh, uh, programs there that benefited Arkansas farmers, but which fatally undermined Haiti's ability to feed itself, which undermined their ability to grow their own rice, for example, and other staples. Um, so all of the in intervention the U.S. has engaged in, in that country has been invariably malign. You know, there's another article, Dan, protests in the South against insecurity. And to me, the first sentence tells it all. 
The complete absence of the Haitian state, which does not give the population any hope of security, forces people to imagine anything and accuse anyone. And this only in further increases the route of society. Here's the thing. The Haitian people need security. They need a secure state. They need, again, food security. They need lots of things. And Joe Biden signed, uh, signing something that says we're going we're, we're gonna to go there and look into corruption. We're going to find people that have been corrupt and we're going to bring them here and prosecute them, implying that the U.S. for some reason has to be the policeman of Haiti as the rest of the world. When what the people need is food and shelter and the basics, it shows a complete disregard for the for the the fundamental needs of the peace people of Haiti. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, I totally agree. And again, it, it fits into this pattern of how the U.S. has treated Haiti. And what Biden is doing right now is exactly what the Haitians don't need. And it's strange, the timing of it, given what's happening in the world, that Biden's decided to do this at this moment against Haiti is, is really bothersome because, yeah, we, they do not have a government in place that is taking care of their needs. Again, the U.S. has made sure of that time and again. Um, and again, now, yeah, the U.S. is going to exert power and control over a sovereign country. Um, it, it's just hard to understand the mindset of Biden at, at, at this moment. And now that we have stronger governments developing in uh, in Venezuela, in Nicaragua, uh, we know about the relationship between the government, particularly under Hugo Chavez, the Venezuelan government under Hugo Chavez and, and Haiti. Uh, all that the United States is doing here seems to be pushing the country in the very direction that it doesn't want the country to go. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. You mentioned Hugo Chavez. I mean, one thing he did for Haiti is provide them with cheap oil, which really helped Haiti meet their energy needs in an affordable way, which meant that, you know, your average person there was able to aff afford their, their heating uh, or their energy costs. Um, and yes, we've undermined Venezuela to the point they weren't able to do that anymore for Haiti or other countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. Again, that was intentional. Um but yeah, we're going to push Haiti more and more towards chaos. And to what end? You know, and then when people in Haiti naturally want to immigrate here because of the chaos, of course, uh, we send them home forcibly. In fact, uh, Biden has sent a record number of Haitians home. We have to remember that uh, at the border. He's been particularly uh, repressive towards Haitian immigrants and yet has not gotten any. Uh, or very little criticism on that score. Um, the other thing, I, I'd like to ask you to comment on this. In light of, in view of the treatment of Haitian refugees, President Biden has recently announced that the, um, and Haitian refugees being in a, in a mess, in a destabilized country that the U.S. intentionally for centuries now has created. Now, uh, President Biden just said, we're taking in 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. We're paying to bring them over here from halfway across the world. Meanwhile, if Haitians get to the border, they're literally beaten like slaves with whips, shoved on a plane and sent back. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think the Ukraine crisis has certainly shown and exposed a lot of racism in the U.S. and the West in general 
on this type of issue where you do see now you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Ukrainians being welcomed as immigrants uh, into countries and into people's homes, whereas, yes, African immigrants in Europe are continuing to be kept out and, and Haitian refugees are being kept out of the U.S. I mean, it's hard to find a, start, a more stark case of racism than this. So, Dan Kovalik, what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great question. I think. In fact, let me let me ask. Let me ask. Do you see a greater role here for Cuba? And back to my previous question about pushing Haiti in a direction that the United States doesn't want it to go. Do you see a greater role for Cuba to be played here in a, in uh, in in its role in relationship with Haiti? Well, yes. And of course, Cuba's always been a big support to Haiti. Uh, after the 2010 earthquake, even the New York Times admitted that Cuba and Venezuela were the front line uh, fighters against the cholera outbreak there and really staunched that epidemic. And so Cuba continues to send doctors uh, to Haiti. And I'm sure they will step up their support to the extent they can. The problem, of course, is that Cuba itself is under increased sanctions and is having trouble now with its, you know, getting supplies for its own people. Uh, but, you know, Cuba will be there for Haiti as it is for many poor countries uh, throughout the world. Dan Kovalik, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Moon of Alabama has a piece entitled, Some Likely Long-Term Effects of the War in Ukraine. And they ask the question, what are the biggest game changers of the Ukraine war so far? For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist, an analyst, and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup in America, is undeclared war. Dan Lazar, as always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So before we get into this analysis from the moon of Alabama, uh, on Friday when Biden touched down in Poland, he called President Putin a war criminal. Then on Saturday, while visiting uh, refugees in Warsaw, Poland, he also called President Putin a butcher and then made the statement during his speech, we will have a different future, a brighter future rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light, decency and dignity, a freedom of possibilities. And then he said, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Then when asked yesterday, are you calling for regime change? He says, oh, no, 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 we're not doing that. Dan Lazar, your thoughts. How, how dangerous and reckless is this Ex extraordinarily so. Extraordinary. I mean, first of all, uh, I, I mean, NATO policy um, uh, so far has been 
uh, based on essentially um, defeating Russia in the Ukraine, but containing the conflict in that country. Uh, and NATO has taken a, a number of steps to see to it the war does not spill over you know, beyond uh, the Ukraine's borders, uh, most especially saying no to the establishment of a, of a no-fly zone, which would bring NATO planes in direct conflict with, uh, with um, Russian planes. Um, so, so therefore, NATO's position has been, you know, we oppose uh, um, uh, Vladimir Putin's assault on the Ukraine. Uh, we support Ukraine's efforts to defend itself. Uh, you know, we want to see the, uh, the Ukraine prevail. But at the same time, we don't want a wider war. Well, um, Joe yeah. Biden's words essentially point directly to a wider war. I mean, essentially what he's saying is that the, is that the, the, the purpose of the, of the conflict is not merely to, to, to stop uh, Putin's invasion and its tracks, but to have regime, regime change in the Kremlin, uh, to, do to, to do to Putin what NATO did to Muammar Gaddafi uh, in, um, in 2000, was 2012, I think it was, or 2011, late 2011. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is to essentially uh, cause his death at the hand of a raging mob. Um, and... Uh, and but not only that, but the the death of uh, of of Gaddafi led to the complete dismemberment, destruction uh, of um, of uh, Libya, its reduction to complete chaos. And there is no reason to think that um, that that uh, regime change in Russia today would have would have any different outcome. So essentially, I mean, uh, so essentially Joe Biden is uh, pointing his gun not only at Vladimir Putin, but at Russia in general. Uh, and uh, I just would point out that that this comes 25 years after uh, Big New Brzezinski wrote his best-selling book, The Grand Chessboard, in which he called for Russia's dismemberment into three separate parts, uh, a European Russia a Siberian Russia and a Far Eastern Russia, uh, and this big Brzezinski is to the Democratic Party what Henry Kissinger is to the Republican uh, Party. Essentially, it's leading geostrategic geo thinker of the last thirty years, um, and so those words carry great weight. And now it looks like uh, like Joe Biden is channeling the ghost of big Brzezinski and trying to to do what Zbig recommended doing in 1997. You know, uh, a couple of things in that uh, President Putin has a very high approval rating right now. It actually kind of strengthens the hand of the the Russian government at home. Things like that will cause their people to kind of rally around the flag a bit. But that being said, um, Moon of Alabama, interesting article, some likely long-term effects of the war in Ukraine. And one of the things, certainly we talk about the freezing of Russia's central bank and things like that. One of the things that I thought was huge, and that is the rapprochement between China and India because of the sheer volume. You're talking three billion out of seven billion people. That is an really is an incredible feat that the U.S.'s uh, empire has, has achieved. But your thoughts on the on the article? 
Well, the article is good. I mean, I mean, I have some disagreements with certain parts, but the uh, but the article was good, and I think the the idea of a, of a Chinese Indian rapprochement is very very important. We'll see if it actually happens. I mean, uh, China has sort of notably bad relations with all its immediate neighbors. It's pretty incredible, um, with the exception of Russia. Uh, and uh, you know, I mean, it's it's awfully silly for China to engage in you know in, in these vicious little border wars with India over a, a few square miles of, you know, of Himalayan territory, uh, you know, and uh, what is it, was it, was it last year or two years ago, Chinese Chinese troops armed with wooden staves and, and, and axes attacked Indian troops in a, in a dis, disputed area in the high Himalayas, uh, you know, and I mean, and this is just ridiculous because border conflicts like this can be very easily resolved if the two sides are really want to do it. Uh, you know, it's and in any case, but so we'll see if 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 that rapprochement really works. But if it does happen, it is a major game changer in terms of the world balance of power. Because as you point out, I mean, it, you know, it'll bring. Two countries with a collective population of three billion people uh, will essentially come together uh, with Iran and Russia as well, forming a a very formidable bloc uh, against the U.S. in Eurasia. There were five points made in this piece. Um, what are the biggest game changers so far? One, the freezing of Russia's central bank assets. Two, China and India's rapprochement. Three, the cementation of the EU's vassalage to the U.S., long-term demise of NATO and a shrinking role for the U.S. in the Middle East will also shrink as a consequence of the war. Interesting point here about the freezing of assets. It says the freezing of Russia's and Iran's, Venezuela's and Afghanistan's assets will have severe consequences for the U.S. dollar. The U.S. essentially defaulted by holding back Russian assets that it had the fiduciary duty to give back. China and everyone else will move its reserves to countries or into commodities that are not under U.S. control. Your thoughts Dan Lazar, was this a uncalculated consequence of U.S. action, or do you think that the U.S. thought through this, threw up its hands and said, who cares, we're going to seize the assets? I think it's an, it's an uncalculated, an unexpected consequence. I mean, essentially, the U.S. is pushing its power too far, um, and it's, it's, it's overstepping itself. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, the uh, the U.S. I mean, yes, I mean, this is this freezing of Russia's ass, ass, assets is an abandonment of a of America's fiduciary duty to respect, uh, you know, all such financial holdings. I uh, you know that that sort of come under its purview. Um, and the U.S. essentially said it didn't really care anymore, and it expected the world to go along with it, but the world does not. Uh, I mean, I think that I think that the 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 big the big news of the last few weeks is how so much of the world is refusing to tag along behind U.S. policy with regard to uh, the Ukraine, um, and they are really fed up with American hypocrisy, which has been pushed to 
bizarre limits, um, and they're unwilling to go along. And so even though, you know, I mean, I don't support uh, Putin's invasion, certainly, but um, and, and many you know, other countries don't as well. But nonetheless, they see the the, the double dealing, the rank hypocrisy behind the uh, the U.S. stance and they just can't go along with it. They can't stomach it. Um, and, yeah, I think that that it's to be expected that countries like a like um, uh, Russia, China, Iran as well will all take measures to remove their financial assets out of U.S. purview and put them someplace where they will be more protected, more secure. And that does mean that essentially we're moving to a a multipolar financial world, uh, not just a multipolar you know political world. It, Garland, r- real quick to, to to Dan's point about hypocrisy. When Biden said on Saturday, we'll have a different future, a brighter future rooted in democracy and principle, my question to the president is, well, if that's your objective here in Ukraine, why did you overthrow the democratically elected government of uh, Yanukovych? Yanukovych. Yanukovych, thank you, in 2014? But, but, but not only that, I mean, why did the, why did the U.S. back Saudi Arabia's uh, uh, invasion of, uh, Yemen. Of, of Yemen. There you go. Why did the U.S. itself invade uh, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan? Why did why did the U.S. destroy uh, Libya? I mean, I mean, I mean. And don't even get me started on Juan Guaido. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Go, go ahead, Garland. <laughs> but let, let me add this, though. One more quick question. And and I like this because I felt this way from the very beginning. You know this, Dan. They say, they say the cementation of the EU's vassalage to the U.S., will only be temporarily. From the beginning, I said, yeah, they're going to all come together. But once they start paying the price, and it may be the 31st of March, because I understand that's when uh, Germany has to either pay in rubles or run out of gas, that the the time is going to come, and it ain't going to be far away. When countries start running out of bread, governments get overthrown. Look at history. Your thoughts on the, the whether you think it'll be temporary, Dan? Oh, yes, I think I totally think it'll be temporary. And not only that, but I think that 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 Biden's nine words, for God's sakes, you know, this man must be, you know, overthrown, whatever, whatever he said, this will essentially uh, accelerate that split. I mean, I mean, uh, I, <laughs> I mean, just a few months ago, Germany's Germany's energy future was secure. You know, it had peace on its borders. It had just, you know, built this pipeline to supply it with natural gas for the, you know, for years to come. Uh, it was selling its goods all over the world. It was the world's, you know, leading industrial exporter. You know, it was just doing great. And suddenly everything has gone to hell to hell. So the Germans have got to be asking themselves, you know, how this happened. And more important, they've got to be saying to themselves, we can't let ourselves be drawn into a bigger war. We can't let another 1914 happen. But that's exactly, by threatening, threatening to carry the war to the Kremlin, that is essentially what Joe Biden is calling for. I mean, this, is, this, is, this, is the, this, this, this will lead to the death and destruction of Europe and certainly they just can't, you know, the Germans can't sit idly by and watch while this tragedy unfolds. 
and I think it's important as we get out here for people to understand Joe Biden in this statement, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. He did not misspeak. What he did was told the tale out of school. What he did was reveal the content and the, I guess, the, the, the end point of the dialogue that takes place in the inner sanctum we call the White House. He just told yeah. the tale out of school. You, we got 30 seconds. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, and, and Anthony Blinken's attempts to walk <laughs> back his, ma- his master's words are just ludicrous. I mean, that's what Biden said. Uh, and he really, you know, it, it was a real Freudian slip. It really, the truth came out. Uh, and so, so the world has got to ask itself. I mean, as bad as things are in the Ukraine, does it really want a another world war? And Americans are going to ask themselves that as well. Do they want Americans' kids, American kids, dying on the steps of Russia? Are they so? insane as to as to want such a prospect i don't think so at all uh and and clearly this 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 thing has got to be stopped before it spirals out of control dan lazar as always thank you so much for your time we greatly appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back thank you folks you've been listening to the critical hour here on radio sputnik thank you for allowing our voices into your space on behalf of myself and my co-host garland nixon we hope you were informed and enlightened and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on radio sputnik be safe peace and blessings we're out 